0: Burden contains depictions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, everyone, to the season finale of Burden. I'm Karen trico Stewart. Coming up on this episode, a legal expert weighs in on what charges could have been filed against Michael Letterman.
1: I mean, can you imagine in present day... If there was no. a shooting in a home and some and the police showed up and two family members and two friends were there first, I mean, that would be front and center
0: evidence. Then later, a conversation with Billie Jean's daughter, Ashley, who's been fighting for justice for her mother for years.
4: I've tried so hard in the past to forgive him and to get past this and just realize, okay, I can't be mad about this anymore because it, he is inadvertently controlling me.
0: Before we dive into this episode, we have a request. This season is the culmination of years of investigation, filming, traveling to Texarkana, and paying for the technology that creates and delivers this show to you. Please consider supporting Burden by making a donation at BurdenPod.com. Every contribution will go toward the production of this podcast and the high-quality investigative journalism it requires. Go to BurdenPOD.com and click on the Donate button at the bottom left-hand side of your screen. And thank you.
2: I'm Stephanie Harris. This season, we've been telling the story of the suspicious death of Billie Jean Letterman, a 21-year-old mother of two who died of a gunshot wound to the head. We know her husband Michael played a role in Billie's death, but he's never been held accountable. Since that night in 1991, he's gone on to hurt even more women— and he's never had to answer for those abuses either. The investigation into Billy's death was woefully inadequate. We know Michael and Billy were in their living room, they were arguing, and Billy ended up shot in the head. As an attorney, I have to look at this case from all angles, but I feel too close to it, so I wanted someone else to weigh in. Erin castanelli is an experienced criminal defense attorney. I've known her for years. We've worked on some projects together in the past. She will also absolutely tell us when we're wrong. Erin handles white-collar defense, state and federal criminal cases, innocence projects, and many other types of defense cases. We wanted to get her opinions on the feasibility of bringing charges against Michael. What are the strengths and weaknesses of the investigation, the evidence, and the medical examiner's opinions? Erin had her newborn with her during the interview. You'll hear her at times during the conversation. We first talked about the last episode— how two medical examiners said completely different things about how the bullet ended up in Billy's head and how both were reluctant to say Billy didn't kill herself.
1: It was confusing that Cocos completely sort of uprooted the prior pathology assessment. Like, you know, now we're talking about a shot from the front. Um, However, neither one seemed like something that Billy would have done to herself. I mean, either way you look at the forensics, Um, that does not seem like a a self-inflicted wound. On the other hand, that really screws up the potential for a criminal case, right? Like you you don't even have a consistent um, pathology report or or assessment. Like you don't have a a solid theory to rest on with your expert where this shot even came from. So, I mean, it makes it harder in that regard, but it – certainly doesn't change the scenario that she didn't do this herself. I don't think.
5: But regarding that, choosing a theory, don't prosecutors and defense attorneys do that all the time? Well, here's our theory. And, and you don't always have clean forensics uh, or a clean ME report. Yeah, definitely. So, but here you
1: have sort of almost opposite conclusions by the one expert that's going to have to be relied on you know and then the critical fact right is is could she have shot herself so I think it would be tough to say we don't even know if this came from behind or in front of her I mean as a defense attorney I could really use that against the state they don't even have a clue what direction this came from. How can they possibly prove that it wasn't the result of, you know, her fighting over the gun or, or putting it to her own head and him intervening? You know, it just makes that harder to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. It, it also, it kind of hurts the whole, I mean, there wasn't enough investigation. We all know that, Right. But to have a medical examiner come in later and say, "And they got all these forensics wrong. Like this didn't even come from behind her ear. That's not even the direction of the of the bullet." Kind of destroys a, a, any marginal investigative effort that happened at the time. Like if they were looking at it through the lens that Malik said, you know, it kind of impairs. Right all of those interviews and everything that was done based on Malik's assessment.
5: But let's say but at the time, Ashley wasn't a witness that they knew of. So let's say, and I've asked her several times, okay, where were they? What were their positions? So, so now let's add this witness in, who, granted, was six at the time, and, and we can talk about that um, too. But for right now, she says that during this fight, as he would, he would have Billy on the ground. And she was definitely fighting back, and she would try to get up, but she was never able to fully get up off the floor. And so if you can imagine, if he's got the, you know, the gun jabbing her in the head, and she's reaching back, trying to get the gun away from her, then does that, so if she turn, and I'm, I'm <laughs> you can't see because we're on the phone, but, like, I'm turning my head to the right, Trying to reach for that gun, and then the gun goes off. So your head then is turned in a position that is where the gun would be coming from the front, but it also has to be six to twelve inches from her head. So I, I really struggle to like make it work in any of these ways. Yeah, I see. I, I, I agree. Um, I think,
1: and we're we're engaging in some really serious speculation when we're doing that. You know what I mean? Like, could we make it work? Is there a possibility that could have happened? Sure. I mean, we can't ever know exactly the positioning of those two human beings at the time um, and what exactly was going on. But but I don't see that you could get to beyond a reasonable doubt on that. Um, And Ashley's explanation to me makes more sense if Malik's theory is accepted. It becomes harder If you're talking about a shot from the front, because she, I I think would have noticed that he was holding a gun to the front of her mother, to her mother's face or the side of her head, you know, but I don't know. She did say that he was
5: holding it to the side of her head. She said he was poking her with it. He was poking her with the gun in the head. I guess in my mind, I'm when
1: I picture that I automatically picture it in connection with Malik's assessment. So in my mind, I picture what Ashley described as like, you know, the side of her head where it ends up being behind her ear, right? Instead of up by her eye. And I don't know why, I guess just because that's what everything sort of led to early on. that's how that speculation <laughs> has resulted in that demonstration in my mind. On the other hand, like if Cocos' assessment is accepted, that does seem more like an accidental shooting, right? Because it's, it barely makes it into her head if it's sort of blew past her ear.
5: So that is a, that is a good segue because I don't think that he meant to shoot her. I really don't. I think that he was, you know, abusing her and the gun went off. But with that said, let's say that's the case. Well, who introduced the gun? Well, if he introduces a gun to this fight, then does that make him culpable for anything? Is there, is there any lesser charge than manslaughter or murder or something?
1: I agree with you on that. Um, why, were, or why the investigation was hung up on whether they were fighting over the gun does not seem like the end of that analysis to me. It seemed like Investigator Nix was real hung up on purposeful or intentional homicide. And he didn't need to be because Michael was at least reckless in the way that he handled that situation. But the fact that he brought a gun into an argument and used it in the argument, and even by his description, she starts, to some extent, she's defending herself. You know, if anybody brings a gun and holds it up, brandishes it to me, I have a right to try to get it or or get it away from me or you know fight back and if that gun goes off I certainly think that it's the person who used it in their to their benefit first right like let's say he didn't go get it off the wall it was just I don't know it was there it was on the floor whatever I mean if he threatened her in any way and I I use the term threatened a little more loosely than you know put it straight up to her head and said I'm going to shoot you if he got it and he's even insinuating that i think she has a right to to try to save herself by getting the gun and if it goes off then i think that he is culpable you know you've got second degree murder you've got manslaughter you've got negligent homicide um, multiple other theories of murder that could have been pursued i pulled some of these i mean manslaughter is reckless You know, you know the risk and you proceed anyway. Well, you know the risk of introducing, like you said, a firearm, much less brandishing it, using it in a threatening manner. I mean, I think that's certainly reckless. I think you could probably get to second-degree murder because you're operating under circumstances that manifest an extreme indifference to the value of human life. We know what happens with firearms. We know their history, you know, Billy and Michael's history. To me, Nix's resolve that they couldn't pursue anything beyond some kind of intentional homicide just does not make any sense. It also doesn't make sense just in an investigative posture. Why in the world wouldn't he you know interview collateral sources? you know that's That's how you would build that case. You know all the other times that Michael has introduced or brandished a firearm, used a firearm in a way that felt threatening. I'm talking to the family members who came to the house that day I mean there's a whole lot. Missing from that investigation that would have supported some lesser degree of homicide as a charge,
5: going to the scene, officer Tommy Clay, he reports that he sees a puddle of blood six to eight inches wide, um, and to me, I interpret puddle as like a pool of blood, not just smudges, and then there were also reported um blood smudges identified as smudges in the kitchen. Well, I don't know where they were in the kitchen in the sink. I don't know. no one else reports this puddle of blood. So Nick says he shows up and the scene is clean, no sign of um, a struggle, and he goes on to the hospital. Well, now this is in 91, so they weren't using, well, they were still using Luminol and, and, and different tools like that, right? I mean, wouldn't you want to at least close off the scene and maybe see where there might be blood splatter? The
1: treatment of the scene is totally inexplicable to me. Whether it's 71, 81, 91, 2021, I mean, they had cameras, they had luminol, they had the ability to document things. I I mean, there's just no good explanation for why that wasn't done. I mean, photographs would go a long way in this case. You know, obviously, the scene was cleaned up, which is evidence in and of itself. And if we had photographs, I think we could probably see what you're talking about, which is things that weren't readily apparent necessarily to an investigator who just jumped in and jumped out of the scene right like we would see things put back together but maybe some things that were overlooked we could maybe find some blood spatter i don't have any explanation for why that wasn't done and i didn't see any in the file i've yet to have any understanding of why that wasn't done even if they believed it was a suicide i mean you would document those things i don't understand the puddle of blood you know, we've talked about like when you have to rely on just a written report, everybody understands their terminology a little differently, right? Like a puddle to somebody might not be a puddle to somebody else. I think he put a measurement in there, um, which is helpful, but it's, it's big enough that anybody would have noticed it as blood, whether they called it a puddle or a smudge or whatever. Anybody would have noticed it as blood. So I I really don't know where to end up on that, except that it's a big hole in this investigation that can't be filled because we can't go back and recreate that scene. And once that wasn't done, that really hampered uh, anybody's ability to prosecute that case. It does make the cleanup, you know, sort of more ripe for prosecution, but doesn't seem like that was really pursued either.
5: Now, of course, we don't have the, the so-called working file, so so there may have been more notes or statements or something in there that they did talk to collateral witnesses, but you know, we don't know that because Miller County won't share anything with us, if they even have it anymore.
1: Well, I kind but, of wonder, based on other people's comments about Michael's parents, Red and Liz, if we would know from secondhand sources if they were interviewed and things like that. I feel like Liz would have said something to someone if the if they really pressured her when they reopened the investigation. I feel like we would know that from other people.
5: As far as we know, as far as the family knows, the ones who will talk to us anyway, no one ever talked to Red or Liz. Now, of course, Red was at the police station with Michael when he gave a statement, and they did talk to them. <clears throat> Excuse me, they at least did talk to Liz uh, because they're, you know, she says. I don't know. All we know is he called and said, Billy's been shot. But that's all we know. Now, there's an allegation that Michael did laundry or someone did laundry that, you know, Grandma Liz, you know, helped clean up the scene. Well, you know, did anyone check the washer? (laughs) Where's clothes in there?
1: You know, I mean, well, and what I mean is an interrogation. I know they were briefly talked to initially, like, what happened? How did you end up here? But I'm talking about, like, a, a real interview where she's interrogated and some of these things are presented to her for explanation, and I think you're right. I think it never happened. And we don't have the working files, so we can't verify that. But I think that's the likelihood. I mean, it seems very well, obvious I mean, to me that they got in a fight. He got a gun and he brandished it, if not put it to her head. And she fought him for it, knowing that her kids were in the next room. She could have seen Ashley in the doorway at some point. You know, I mean, that sure would get me to defending myself. I mean, it seems very obvious to me that she fought back and was shot in the process at best, if not deliberately. Even with the minimal amount of evidence, that just seems very, uh, extremely likely to have been the scenario.
5: Otherwise, she
1: didn't plan on committing suicide, didn't make any plan to do so. In fact, had behaved in a way that would be inconsistent with somebody considering suicide, and she would have killed herself in front of her children
5: even just having children. I mean, Whitney was only 18 months old and Ashley was six. Now, I, don't, I, I would be surprised if she knew Ashley was standing there because she's in the middle of this fight. But also keep in mind, she's already had this experience with Michael because he broke her jaw. Who knows how, but I'm guessing he kicked her in the face, broke her jaw. Um, also, uh, her ankle was broken. And I'm not sure that we know how that happened. He had, you know, done other things to her, of course. So she's already had this experience with him. So wouldn't that make the struggle even more important, knowing what well, he's already he's, done to her, and now he's got a gun to her head, which may not be the first time he's done that with a gun.
1: Well, surely not. It's not lost on me that it's hanging like a like on display in their living room, and he'd been playing with it the weekend before. I think probably that gun hanging around was a constant reminder of his control. But, yeah, I, I mean, even if she doesn't see the kids in the doorway, they're in a tiny house, and their room is connected to the living room where this happens. I mean, she had to know that they could hear, you know, and I think that if I remember, Ashley had just been up and told to go to bed, right? Right. I just think as a mother, I cannot imagine her not fighting for her life in that moment and for her children. And neither of the scenarios presented by the medical examiners are compelling as to a suicide. Michael's own statements but that's a whole nother issue is what yeah. does he even say happened in these interviews? He just like doesn't. he avoids saying everything, and then the police suggest things to him, and he if he ever says anything, it's just agreeing to something they suggest, but he is very the one thing he's clear on is that he puts the gun in her hand. It's like he knows that he can't have that gun in his hand when it goes off. So he c- tries to come up with a way that it's in her hand. And then over the years, he tells other people different versions, but all that put it not in his hand. Like he knows exactly what he's trying to avoid there. It seems just mm-hmm. totally asinine, really, to think that she she took that gun and was going to shoot herself.
5: I agree. And unfortunately, the investigation was such that he will never be held responsible for it, I'm assuming at least in court, but what about the statement where he he never really commits to anything? He will never say that he even touched the gun, that he he went for it, but I don't think he ever says that he actually touched it. They, they suggest things
1: to him. They allow him to avoid answering every substantive question. I mean, even as simple as, like, where were you standing when X happened? And he would say, in the living room. Well, we know he was in the living room for the whole event. I mean, it becomes way more important to figure out where in the living room, by the couch, by the door, by the body, by the kids, like where? And they don't seem to press him. Like to the extent they do, they might ask it twice, but they let him get away with not answering. And then he doesn't really know if she's right or left-handed, or I think they ask him, does she have it in her right or left hand, and he doesn't know. I mean, he doesn't know things. I I can understand somebody that's been through a trauma doesn't know every little detail, but he doesn't know any detail of anything. Uh, and then he uses this whole
5: kicking the gun thing as just a catch all. Like, I don't know, it's kicked it. We're also supposed to believe that after he's just said that Billy would move it around to keep it out of the way of the kids, that it was just on the floor. Right. They don't, they don't do your basic. Okay. Starting out, where
1: was everybody? Where was everything? Starting at the beginning, here's where everybody was. Here's the chronology of what happened. Here's where things ended up. They don't do any of that. They don't explain how it got on the floor. He says he kicked it towards her, but there's no explanation of where she was relative to where she ended up or where the gun ended up or where the couch was. Like, between this statement and other statements that he's made after this, I still don't understand where the couch comes into play because some is like she was sitting on the couch at some point where the kicking of the gun comes into play, why anything would be by the door. No explanation for any of that. And they don't seem to try to get an explanation for any of that either.
4: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
5: What do you make of him lying directly on top of her?
1: For one thing, why was he not secured? You know, in a normal crime scene, he would be taken away, secluded from everybody, right? Like, so he can't talk to his parents or his friends to get their story straight. He can't contaminate the crime scene. Like, why is he even... You know, I mean, I know when they showed up, obviously he's on top of her. But after that, he should have never been near her. As far as when when they arrived, um, him being on top of her, I mean, it seems obvious that that's a forensic countermeasure, as they say on Criminal Minds. He, he's trying to what I would think is either taint her body or try to kill her. This is a, a little bit speculative, but I think that it's pretty likely that he shot her quite a while before he ever called 911 and he was hoping and waiting for her to die and she didn't. And eventually he had to do something, right? I mean, he couldn't just leave her there all night and then call 911 because it would have been way too obvious that she had been, you know, laying there for 10 hours. So yeah, it seems like he was trying to, to ensure that that resulted in her death and make sure that if there was any need that there was an excuse for his DNA to be all over her.
5: Well, there would not been other, DNA then. Or
1: well, okay, fingerprints, have. you know, there, there right. would have been, I mean, they could still, I think in 91, they could still see biologicals, couldn't they? They just didn't have the testing.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: I can't really remember exactly when, but I feel like it was just a little bit later in the 90s that some of the DNA testing was more common, but they could see fluids and things. But, yeah, I mean, I I think he was laying on top of her to contaminate any potential there was in the crime scene and to ensure that him shooting her resulted in her death.
5: And he would have been doing that with his parents and friends there because they were there before the police and EMTs. so, So they would also be watching him do this to her. I mean, can you imagine in present day...
1: If there was no. a shooting in a home and some and the police showed up and two family members and two friends were there first, I mean that would be no. front and center evidence. It's just outrageous. And then the fact that nobody tried to verify whether he actually did try to call 911. I mean that's an easy that's, that's an easy one, right? Even in 91 they could check phone records. And if he tried to oh. call 911 and no one answered, so did other people. You know, I mean there was a way to well, verify that.
5: You know, he calls his two buddies, you know, Charlie Glover and Mark Choate. Well, you can't make people give statements or testify, right? So, so let's say the police now went to them and said, okay, what did you see? What did he tell you? What has he told you since? I mean, what kind of leverage do the cops have over witnesses who are not, um, who can't plead the fifth, I guess? Well, you, they can
1: force people to testify. Now, strategically, that's a different question, right? But the state can compel people to testify. They can give them immunity and they can't, then they don't have a Fifth Amendment privilege. And then, you know, a subpoena compels them. So they have to testify truthfully. The the strategic issue there is, do you really want to call somebody as a witness who doesn't want to testify and says that they're not going to be helpful when they do? Because then you risk putting a witness up there in your case who tanks your case, right, who says the opposite of what you want them to say. What you can't do mm-hmm. is compel them to tell you what they're going to say. We do have prosecutor subpoenas in Arkansas, so I mean, they could compel somebody to come to the police department and give a statement, but they can't control the words that come out of that person's mouth. You know, at the risk of sounding like we're narrating a TV show, um, you know, over the years, I have to wonder if those two guys have had any run-ins with the law. Never been popped for Mm -hmm. drugs or for possession of a firearm. I mean, that's how the cops get leverage on people. Everybody's all good to protect their friend until it's at the risk of their own freedom. You know, then that Mm -hmm. becomes a different dynamic. Like, am I going to go to jail for my hiccup or am I going to tell on my friend? Human nature is to be self-protective. So I don't know. I just wonder if they've ever been in a position to try to use anything unrelated to get some leverage with those two guys.
5: Well, I'm I'm um, sure that they have that uh, tried.
1: I'm sure, too. Now, at the time that this happened, they had built-in leverage. I mean, they showed up to a scene where someone was shot in the head before the police got there, and there was indications of a cleanup. I mean, in today's world, that would be a pretty intense interrogation. I mean, because it, it, it's, it's not wrong to infer that the four people who showed up before paramedics and police helped Michael clean up the crime scene. mean that probably wouldn't float in court yet you know without a little bit more although i don't know i mean the fact that he had changed clothes and showered and i think later ashley says like the items on the table had been replaced and you know all those things that raises a pretty strong circumstantial evidence but Mm -hmm. at the time that would have been the pressure point is to make them believe that they had sufficient circumstantial evidence to prosecute them and to force them to say what happened
5: okay so so this is a two-part question One, have you had any or many cases involving a child witness? And then two, I guess, really, how reliable can they be at the time—a six-year-old—and how reliable are their memories now, as someone in their thirties? That is a really tough question. Um, I don't think that I have had
1: a witness as—I've had witnesses as young as six in non-homicide cases. And I've had child witnesses in homicide cases but that weren't as young as six. I mean, this would definitely be subject to competency issues. You know, a judge would have to decide that she was competent.
5: Can you explain the competency assessment just for a layperson?
1: Yeah, let me make sure that I'm going I know they, they have to know the difference between – so in order to be a competent witness, you have to know the difference between the truth and a lie – And you have to be able to describe events with accuracy and and sort of establish that you have the ability to remember them accurately. And I I think a six-year-old could be competent to testify, particularly about something like that, because there's not a lot of wiggle room there, meaning you can't really be confused about what you did or didn't see and how to interpret it, right? Right.
5: Meaning that the child does not think the way adults do in, like, trying to get out of something or trying to make what they saw fit into certain theories.
1: Yes, and she's not having to make any inferential leaps in what she saw. I mean, she's just saying a lot of times the child witnesses, the actions that they recount then have to be assessed for the motive if that makes sense. Like, was that an innocent mm-hmm. touch or not?
5: Mm-hmm. And you
1: can't really rely on, like, a four-year-old or a five-year-old to tell you what somebody was thinking or intending or how they... But, but Ashley was just recounting, like, literally what she saw. Like, he walked in here and picked up the gun. And he had it to her head. She was screaming. You see what I'm saying?
5: Mm-hmm. So
1: that seems like a more reliable... Um, it seems like she could be competent to testify to that. She's not telling you you know their history she's not telling you what they were fighting over she's not telling you how her mom felt or she's not having to mm-hmm. to make assessments that a 6-year-old really can't understand she's just telling you who she saw walk in who was holding a gun that kind of thing now i don't know mm-hmm. the answer to this but i wonder if ashley can remember things like where that gun was and some other just factual things about the house that might strengthen her credibility.
5: You bring that up. When we went to the house, we were able to go in there and see that it was vacant at the time. And she puts the gun rack on the wall opposite the TV above the couch. But in the police report, the gun rack is above the TV and the couch is on the other side of the room. But that's the only thing really that I have kind of come across that, that made me wonder. Now, I worry about people, because I do it myself, conflating memories, or absorbing other people's memories or statements or stories into my own. And that's what Mm -hmm. I would worry about with her as an adult who was a child at the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it matters when she first recounted her story, and how similar it is to the story that she tells now. You know, so if, if she was eight years old and said, this is what I saw, and that's what she has said she saw for every, you know, every year after that, then I think that's got a lot more credibility. The risk of conflating stories is, is less. And we're not really relying on her memory from 30 years later. Right. Because it was her memory, you know, very close in time. I mean, that's what I'd be looking at is every instance I can find of her, telling somebody what she saw and how similar those recountings are. Mm -hmm. So did she say the same thing when she was 8 and 10 and 15 and 20 and, you know?
5: Right. So she started talking about it just spontaneously to her stepmom when she was about 8. And she was talking about how Michael would treat Billy. She was mean or he was mean to her, you know, however she characterized it. That's actually when Topper says he learned that Michael was abusive, uh, physically abusive to Billy. And he started asking around and started hearing stories. And I think that's probably about when H. L. Phillips probably sometime well, it she was about eight, so that would have been, let's say, ninety three, and then he reopens it in ninety six. So maybe, you know, I don't know, but maybe Topper had been talking about it to someone he knew in law enforcement in Blevins or wherever they lived, and that's when H. L. Phillips was like, "Yeah, we'll see if you can get some information from her."
1: But we don't know exactly what she said in that interview. Is that right?
5: She wasn't actually yeah. formally interviewed that we can that we can find. I think it was it was more like he he was either a retired law enforcement or current. But he, what H. L. Phillips says was that there just wasn't really much information. It was you know some piecemeal or just little things here and there, but nothing substantive, nothing that he could work with. But of course, why you wouldn't then just schedule an interview. I don't know if they had child forensic interviewers back then, but why not just well, makes her? me
1: yeah, it makes me wonder what he thought he could work with. What was he hoping for? I mean, because I think the best you could hope for is I saw this, and again, I'm just totally flabbergasted at Nick's assessment that her that she confirms Michael's story about the fight and therefore the case is sort of dead in the water. I uh, don't understand it, I, that either. I mean, I can hear a prosecutor right now in my mind trying that case and saying, look, there's there's corroboration between their statements, and all he's done is switch, like, put himself and, you know, switch him and Billy's rollout.
5: Right, this and Nick said, problem. look, it's a he said, she said. Well, isn't almost everything we do in, in criminal justice, isn't it all he said, she said, for the most part? Yeah. And, and also, it it she does corroborate it. Yeah, I, I I can only assume that Nick just did not remember. I, I, I don't I don't yeah. understand anything that he said really because he also said that it took so long to get the medical examiner report. Well, they had that report in November of ninety one, three months after Billy's killed. He even refers to it in the report, in a report he writes. So I don't I don't understand what he's talking about. I mean, he just said things that just were not true according to his own record. and there's no date on this supplemental report that I see, but it basically says the department received results of the test performed by the crime lab. Um, they were unable to conclude whether the victim had fired the shot that struck her, although the results indicated that gunshot residue was located beneath the skin and there was stippling of the skin surrounding the wound. No mention made in the report as to distance of the weapon from the victim's head, although the lab was unable to find any indication that the victim had fired the weapon. Doesn't rule that out. Uh gunshot residue tests performed on the victim's husband may also be inconclusive incon- because they were not taken approximately 18 to 20 hours after the shooting occurred and he cleaned himself to lose twice. And then he says, most probable scenario is that the witness fired the shot, that struck his wife, and ultimately caused her death. Although it seems unlikely, there does exist the possibility that the incident occurred exactly as he describes it. Uh, the victim was holding the weapon in her hand and it discharged as the witness attempted to intervene. Witness and victim were known to argue and have violent fights. According to family members, the victim had received injuries on previous occasions but would not leave or divorce her husband. Although they had a purported history of physical violence during arguments, there was no evidence of a struggle at the scene of the shooting. The house was in good order and there was no sign of a struggle, even though the witness stated that he and the victim were involved in a fairly heated argument prior to her receiving the gunshot load.
1: Two things come to mind when you read that to me. One is who
5: like what
1: investigator writes that? Tell me what you mean. Well, I mean, investigators don't generally write things like it could have happened this way, but it could have also happened the way the defendant says it happened. While that might be true, that's just not the way that detectives usually document things. You know, it's like here I'm gonna I'm gonna author a document that makes sure that this doesn't get prosecuted. Like, that just does not sound like a, you know, I I don't know. Detectives aren't impartial, right? They're trying to put together a case. I mean, we want them to be fair in their gathering of evidence and things like that. But, I mean, they're trying to find out what happened and generally trying to prosecute somebody. So it's just weird to me that he spent so much time, like, arguing both sides of that. And then the other thing that comes to mind is, as in many cases, um, this investigation hinged on witnesses that he never interviewed i mean it's not unusual to not have um, findings from the crime lab be conclusive in a case and we have autopsies that are undetermined all the time that result in prosecutions gunshot residue is is hit or miss because it's so easy to transfer and to eliminate you know like, like you said washing your hands or whatever um so those things don't necessarily foreclose a prosecution. It just means that other evidence is used. So, like, did you know? Was she? Did she ever talk about committing suicide? Had, she, had this ever happened before? Had Michael brandished a firearm in, in any other circumstances? What did he say to other people about this? The kids did actually see it. I mean, all those things should have been addressed. Because what that assessment says to me is, hey, we got to rely on other investigative avenues. To figure out what happened, which is not well, unusual. He clearly
5: talked to her family. It says according to, to family members. Well, who
6: did he talk to? Nick
5: had talked to. It doesn't say. That's the thing. It's like, well, according to family members, the victim had received injuries on previous occasions, but would not leave or divorce her husband. Well, and I don't know why I always forget this, but there was a time that her sister told us that he shot at her. Uh, she was running away from her, him, and he shot at her like out a car window or something. So, I mean, surely they would have told him that story as well. Yeah, and I mean, some of that's not
1: admissible, but it it could lead to admissible evidence, like if if he just really dug in on that. But, you know, the fact that you don't have reports of those interviews, to me, means that he didn't take them seriously. Like, he didn't intend for them to result in any kind of evidence. I mean, just a general Mm -hmm. statement, like they said, he abused her doesn't really help us. I mean, as you know, some of that abuse might be admissible and some not. Uh, well, in my let's experience, talk about that. Doctors, can you
5: explain that?
1: Yeah, in my experience, investigators often spend a lot of time on those other what we call other bad acts because because they can build a case where it's going to be hard for a jury not to convict this horrible human. <laughs> you know, now Arkansas law says we don't convict people based on their character, so you know, having done something. You know, historically it doesn't mean that you did it this time. But uh, there are exceptions to that. Uh, it's commonly called 404B. You'll hear that lingo a lot. Um, so, evidence of other bad acts, whether they're criminal acts or not, um, while not admissible to prove character, can be admissible to prove other things or used for other purposes. The examples given in the rule are for proof of motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan knowledge identity or absence of mistake or accident this is kind of a hard rule to conceptualize it's it's not any easier in court either we instruct juries and i think it's 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 always a tough one because how do you not you know consider the character of a person when you're hearing about all the other bad things that they've done but courts sort of look to several factors to determine whether a prior act could be admitted and some of those are whether it happened, you know, whether there's enough evidence to prove that the prior act really happened um, and whether it was similar enough to the charged act to really prove, um, to really be useful for one of the purposes that I just listed. Um, and they look at, was it too far in time? You know, was it too long ago to really be relevant to this? And then is it too prejudicial meaning, you know, would this cause a jury to convict this person just because of this prior act instead of based on the evidence of the act for which they're charged? Um, As much as I want to say that all of these people that Michael Letterman abused should be able to come to court and testify to that, I don't think the law would allow that. Now, let me say as one caveat, if Michael Letterman put his own character in issue, then those things would be admissible. So if he were to present evidence Say he testified that he would never abuse a woman, then all bets are off and those women, you know, would be able to testify. But surely a lawyer would keep him from setting his own trap in that regard. Um, But I do think that some of that uh, bad act evidence would come in. You notice I said absence of mistake or accident. You know, he's essentially saying that this was an accident. So, In my opinion, there's a really good argument to admit his prior use of firearms against women, against women with whom he's in a relationship. You know, so um, I believe his first wife had a story where he put a gun to her head and then decided that it wasn't worth him going to prison. Um, That seems pretty similar to what we believe happened here. The difference being that Billy fought back. And the gun ended up going off and killing her. So to me, there's a really compelling argument that 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 prior act should be admissible to prove maybe intent, um, uh, but definitely absence of accident. Uh, He sort of set himself up for that one. And then arguably some of the prior abuse um, against Billy would be admissible, particularly if his defense is that he was not being abusive. You know, if he said he he didn't engage in the conduct that is alleged, like he was kicking her and hitting her and yelling at her and threatening her, perhaps there's an argument that some of those prior events, you know, where he was doing the same things are admissible. The jaw breaking is probably not going to be admissible, unfortunately, because as I understand it, Billy never admitted to anyone that he did it so it would be tough to prove that he actually caused that injury even though we all know he did you know logically mm-hmm. we know he did legally i think it might be hard to to get there and and also it's dissimilar you know it doesn't involve a firearm et cetera. but i think you know it's it's not unlikely that his defense would include some some representation that he wasn't abusive and then that might change that analysis a little bit
5: what's the policy behind excluding um prior bad acts. Well, we don't want to
1: convict people based on their character. We want to convict them based on evidence that they committed a crime. And jurors are human beings. And so if you tell them, you know, this guy's a jerk, like he did all these bad things, then there's a real danger that they're prejudiced, that they will convict him of the charge because they know he's a bad guy. Like nobody's losing sleep over imprisoning somebody who's a horrible person, even if maybe the evidence on the particular charge doesn't chin the bar. You see what I mean? So I think mm-hmm. it's, it's a protection against convicting people based on one's perception of them as a bad person. Michael is prime example, right? Imagine if you could march mm-hmm. all these women in who we now know he abused. It would be really tough for a juror not to want to put him in prison regardless of what the evidence was about Billy because he's just yes. an abuser. I mean, I would be thinking as a juror, we're lucky that he's only killed one person.
5: And I, you and I both have heard plenty of cases where jurors may not think he did this, but that he did something. Right. And they're, they're going to convict based on that.
1: And they're going to say, well, if he held a gun to Gail's head, and, you know, if he did all these other things, then he probably did it on this date, too, even though we don't have enough factual evidence to really know that. We're going to infer that he did because he did all these other bad things in other um, scenarios, and that's not really permissible under the law. And by the way, there are plenty well, of times where that's a good thing. You know, we we feel in this moment, you know, he's such a bad person and it's such an abusive person, and nobody's going to lose sleep You know, if he goes to prison for this, because he's done plenty of things that he deserved to go to prison for, right, and hasn't been punished. But there are a lot of other scenarios where that rule against character evidence is really necessary. I mean, it really is. Nobody wants their worst day to be on display when they're charged with a crime that's unrelated to that worst day.
5: And the state has to prove its case. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the world is full of assholes. That doesn't mean they're guilty of the crimes they're accused of committing. I wish
1: somebody would investigate this further. I mean, I know in my heart of hearts that it would be nearly impossible, if not impossible, to prosecute. But it just feels so unfinished, unresolved. You know, even just a good effort, I think, would go a long way, even if it didn't result in charges. You know, it seems like that's what Ashley and a lot of other friends and family really want is just somebody to pay attention to this. And even if it doesn't put somebody in prison, just, you know, give us some closure, get us some answers, or at least show, show the concern, right? Like show that you care enough to go try to do, do more.
5: I totally agree with you about, about just giving the family, just any indication that you give a shit like that is, that would go so far. And they just refuse. like what harm would it be to sit down with Ashley for an hour and report a statement? okay, Ashley, what happened? That's all you have to do. just stick it in the file. You don't have to do anything with it, but you know but knowing that they don't care, especially knowing that everyone believed that Michael was culpable for some in some way, and still just never bothered so, well, and just it's think very about frustrating. what he like what he
1: took away from that, right like I mean, he yeah. felt so sure that he was fine to bring a firearm into a fight with someone that was less than half his size, and as long as he didn't intentionally pull the trigger, he's all good. I mean, that's right. not the law, but that's the law for Michael Letterman in Texarkana.
5: Yeah, that's right. And now he has he has shown that thus far he is accurate. <laughs> You can get away with anything
1: yeah. in Texarkana. That's terrifying.
0: That was Stephanie speaking with criminal defense attorney Aaron Casanelli. As part of Billie Jean's story this season, we heard from her daughter Ashley, who has been fighting for justice for her mom for years. She set out to tell the story of her mother to see what could be done about the case, and in hopes of raising awareness of issues surrounding domestic violence. Being a part of this podcast has meant many difficult and uncomfortable conversations for her and for everyone who's been involved and has been interviewed. I reached out to Ashley to get an idea of how this project has affected her and her relationships with her family members. I learned that some relationships have actually grown closer, but some have fractured. The original interviews with Ashley for this project happened in 2018. We asked her at that time what she wanted to see happen moving forward, and then I asked her if what she said back then still applies today. Here's Ashley in 2018.
4: I don't think he'll ever admit to what he's done to my mom. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty religious person. I've, you know, I, I'm one of those who, I have taken it really hard that I can't forgive him when I can forgive people who've done awful things to me in the past. Um, and I feel like I'm one of those who thinks that he's going to have to actually admit to what he has done and ask for my forgiveness before I'm gonna be able to fully do it. And I've tried, I've tried so hard in the past to, to forgive him and to get past this and just realize, okay, I can't be mad about this anymore because it, he is inadvertently controlling me. And I never wanna give him that power to be able to control me. But at the same time, I just, I cannot bring myself to forgive him knowing that he has never said, okay, this is what happened and I'm sorry. He's never ever said that. He's never one time ever said, I'm sorry. I want the justice that my mom deserves. I want when people say, Oh, Billy, you know, I don't want him, oh, that's that girl that shot herself. No, that's that girl whose husband killed her. You know, I want them to know what kind of person Michael really is as opposed to the act that he puts on. Um, You know, he's one of those who will go to church on Sunday morning and holier than thou sit on the front front pew and you know walk up and shake the preacher's hand before and after service and then as soon as he gets in the vehicle to leave he is he is another person he is someone that you know even himself I don't think he recognizes who he really is I really think he is sick um and I think that he is eaten up with guilt of what he did I really honestly do he uh his health is bad. He's had nothing but awful things happen to him in life. I want him to know that he's not going to get away with it, that he's going to answer one way or another, and that I'm never going to stop standing up for my mom, that he can bully a female, and he can he can push them around, and hit on them, and scare them. And he's not going to do that to me, ever. I can't say that it'll make me feel any better if he's in prison. I mean, I would certainly love that thought of him being where he could no longer do that to anyone ever again. And for him to do nothing, have no time to think of, oh, I'm, I've got to get up. What deer stand do I go get in this morning? Or where am I going to go to eat breakfast? I want him to, to wake up every morning and say, I have nothing to do but sit here and think of what, what put me here. I never want him to forget it. I want him to wake up every day and the first thing that he think about is my mom. And the last thing that he's thinking about before he goes to bed at night is my mom. I never want that to leave his head and to know that I I stood up for her and that I put him there when he never thought I would. Um, but I will not quit. Even if it just means getting his name out there. Where people know, hey, this guy is not good news.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much still in the same headspace when it comes to that. Um, I think... Michael knows who he is, you know, he just tries and does a pretty good job, actually, of hiding it from a lot of people until you get to know him behind closed doors. I've still not forgiven him for what he's done. I've really tried, I've talked to a lot of people about it, and I'm just, you know, right when I think, okay, maybe I'm going to make some progress with this, it just always turns back to, nope, just saw him, and I'm pissed off all over
0: again. And that's one of the challenges that Ashley still faces. She and Michael live in the same area and she inevitably will run into him.
3: Every time I see him, I can just, I can just start shaking all over. I'm just mad. Um, You know, every ounce of me wants to just, I don't know what I want to do. Honestly, I just want to scream at him. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just mad every time I see him, but I'll see him mostly at the grocery store. And, uh, you know, it just, which I'm not very nice either. I'm, I'm, I'm not nice when it comes to my mom. So I make it known that, you know, I see you and I know what you did. You know, it's, it's, we've had some heated, um, I guess, meetings in public. Uh, if you want to call him that, it's never been argumentative because he never opens his mouth. He usually turns and goes the other direction about as quickly as he saw me. Um, I saw him, um, I was walking down the aisle and he was right behind me and I could feel myself trying to like speed up. And then I was like, just stop. Ashley, you've got to stop because you're not going to let him control you. You're not going to let him have this control over your emotions right now. And so I just, I stopped and I turned around and he had done an about face and was going the other direction when he figured out it was me, that he was walking behind.
6: I thought it was surprising how in the clip that, that we played from, 2018, I, I was surprised to hear you say that you do think that Michael is eaten up with guilt because it, it's just often easy for us to assume that someone who hurts so many people must not care about anything or anyone. But there seems to be a part of you that, that feels like Michael is eaten up by guilt over this.
3: Yeah, and I don't know what makes me feel that way, but it is a feeling that I cannot shake he's one of those people who he really cares what people have to think about him and what they have to say about him. And so I feel like if nothing else, it's just because he doesn't want people to view him in a bad light, so to speak. So I don't know, but there is part of me that feels like he, he's too close to it. Put it that way. He sees me too often. He, um, you know, for up until the last year, maybe two years, every single day when he would leave home or go home, He's sitting at the stop sign across from the house that she was killed, you know, killed in. So, I mean, it's something that he can't escape. And I just, I feel like, um, I don't know why, but I do feel like he is, uh, he's probably eaten up with guilt over it. I mean, how could you not be at that point? You know, you've taken something so damn precious from so many people. How could you not feel bad for it?
6: I want to ask you about um, your relationship with Whitney, since you two were separated when she was only 18 months old when your, your mom died, and she went to live with Michael or stayed with Michael, and then you went mm-hmm. to live with your dad. Did you have a relationship when you two were growing up? And if so, how is, how is your relationship today as well?
3: Uh, you know, I would see her um, on weekends at deer camps, like when we get down there there were different camps, different parts of the deer Lease. You know, you had um, what they called Smith Camp, and that's where Michael and um, the Smiths and, you know, some more people would camp. And then you had the Letterman Camp, and that's where we camped and my papal stayed and, like, my papa's brothers and all of them were at. And then you had, like, another little area. But when Whitney would come down there with Michael, you know, I was always asking dad, like, hey, can she stay with us? And, you know, sure, whatever. So she would stay with us in our camp sometimes. And, um, you know, and we always had that relationship. And then, you know, even in adulthood, when my ex-husband and I, when we got married, she was in our wedding. And then I was at her, not in it, but at her wedding when she and her husband got married. And then... um we stayed in contact. We were never as close as I would have liked for us to have been. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, well, I'm, I'm positive that the fact that I refused to go around Michael, um, any more than I just had to was a big factor in that. But she, she cut off all contact with me whenever I started the Justice for Billie Jean Facebook page. Um, she got really mad and tried to have it shut down and, um, basically just told me that, you know, that I'm just a liar and that her dad is a, a good Christian guy and uh, that's not how he is. And it, it was sad for me because I know some of the things that she witnessed, you know, I know some of the things that she went through and it sucks to know that, um, you know, I've got, I've got nephews that I'll never know because of her cutting contact off. So it's just, and I respect that if that's how she feels. I mean, that's her dad. It, I guess she feels like that's all she's got. So she needs to protect it. And so she does, but she and I are two different people on that aspect because I can honestly say, you know, I've walked away from people, um, you know, especially over my mom, you know, and there've been other relatives who, oh, well, you know, I'm, you know, I love you, but I grew up with him and I don't think that he's that way. And, and, you know, there've been just people who I've like, okay, that's fine. We don't have to have a relationship, but, um, I'm hoping that one day she'll she'll want to you know have that contact again because it's she's all I have of my mom you know right
6: yeah exactly
3: that it's hard you know <clears throat> to uh, not have that and for her to I don't know I don't know where her headspace is you know I I don't and um, I guess that's I don't know it just bothers me because I know that my mom would not have ever wanted that. So because she was so close to her sister growing up and, you know, her family. And so it just, I don't know, it bothers me. It really does. But I have to respect her wishes as well.
6: Yeah. So this season we talked a lot about the the many failures that led to your mom's case not being properly mm-hmm. investigated. So from your perspective, what factors do you think were at play that caused the investigation to go so wrong?
3: Uh, I think the number one factor that caused it all was just, um, neglect on the police department and, and the investigators sides. There seemed to be no sense of urgency and, you know, and whether it be because they were paid off or whether it be because they just may have been lazy or may it be because they just, um, you know, that maybe they were afraid of the family. I don't really know, but the biggest issue, the biggest factor, and no justice for my mom is their lack of work. They didn't do anything to try to help her. They never followed through and and did the, uh, did the lie detector test on Michael. There are no reports from my grandmother. There are no reports from my grandpa. There are no reports from any of the others who were at the house that night. Um, there's nothing. You know, no one knows what anyone knew because no one bothered to ask the question. So when you grew up...
6: To what extent did you have contact with your grandparents, Red and Liz, and Mm -hmm. did you ever talk to them about what happened to your mom?
3: Um, I saw my grandpa all the time. He would come down to where we were living at. You know, he would come and maybe stay a weekend, or he would uh, bring the camper up and stay in the camper for the weekend, or maybe just passing through on his way to the deer camp. He would come in and visit, but I would see him there because growing up, my dad was an avid hunter and still is. And so every weekend we were either at fish camp or at deer camp. And so my grandpa was there every weekend as well. And, you know, he was just, he was loving towards me. He was um, the life of the party, I guess you could say. Um, But he was always there. You know, I always saw him. There was never a time that I was around. He didn't bother to speak to me. Um, you know, just random conversation. It never mattered what it was. You know, he was just always there. And as far as my grandmother goes, as little as possible, I guess you could say, um, you know, she never came down. She never went to the deer camp. It was very rare that you would see her there. Um, she never came to the house to try to visit with me after mom died. I honestly don't remember one time of ever seeing her come to our house. Um you know, Christmas, we we didn't hear from her. Birthdays, we didn't hear from her. Um, she wouldn't even remember when our birthdays were. So it it just kind of became normal, I guess, to not have anything to do with her. And then there were occasions, you know, when we were in Texarkana, we would go, um, go by their house or something. You know, Dad would swing by and I'd see him then, but it was just very rare. It was always, um, I don't know, it was just always kind of um, – him, I guess you could say to be around, especially her, but with my grandpa, he was just always a loving guy to me, you know, he was always just my papa, mhm,
6: yeah, so you never you never witnessed him abusing anyone, is that right?
3: no I never did i don't I don't recall ever even hearing him raise his voice at anyone while I was around uh you know that's just something that i never I never saw I never heard be that way so it was it was always kind of shocking to hear my dad talk about you know how he was and it really it hurt me for my dad to listen to the episode that had you know him and there talking about how he grew up in his childhood and you know I can remember hearing stories and I would just have to tell him like okay I don't want to hear anymore because that that bothers me because um, I guess I didn't want the image to be marred of him even though mm-hmm. deep down like I know I have this feeling that he's behind or he's a big part of the reason that there was probably never any, um, any progress in getting justice for my mom. Mm-hmm. I feel like he probably had a big hand in um, why police did not do anything to try to further you know, solve any, anything in that case.
6: episode two, you had mentioned that when you were very young, you didn't really know your dad, Topper, as your dad. Um,
3: Uh
6: And I'm curious, so when did you know that Topper was your father, and did you ever think that that Michael was your father?
3: You know, I don't really recall ever thinking that anyone was my father, to be honest. Um, You know, I mean, I just know that growing up... um, I say growing up from the time I was from for early memories until mom passed, you know, I just remember, um, I remember Michael being there, but I was never told to call him dad or anything like that. And then as far as my dad goes, um, I don't really know when if there was just a specific time, but I remember, um, being little and we would always, we had a, uh, had A big farm, so we were always out doing things and the animals and stuff. And I remember dad had come in one day and he laid down across the living room floor, just laying there. And, and I think by this time, my sister, she was maybe I don't know, she was probably a toddler or, or just a newborn, and uh, he would lay in the floor and play with her also. And I remember, um, I remember I would always call him Topper that's just that's what I had always called him, I didn't call him dad. And then I just remember one day I just asked him, you know, can I call you dad? And he was like, well, you know, I am your dad. And I was like, oh, okay. And it just kind of went from there, you know, and he's been dad ever since. In kindergarten, I went and stayed with him and his wife for, you know, a few months, I guess. Even then I called him Topper, you know. So I don't know. I don't really remember a specific time that it just kind of clicked for me. Yeah,
6: and Topper did speak about that time that you went to live with him for a few months before your mom was shot, um, and he he had guessed, or he, it seems that he's very hard on himself that he wishes he would have clued in at that time, and he guessed that probably you were being sent to him because your mom thought that things were getting so bad that you needed to leave the home. Do you have yeah. any thoughts on that?
3: Um, I. I hate that he's hard on himself about that and, you know, I never want him to feel um, any kind of guilt or anything thinking, well, maybe if I knew, if I knew, if I knew, because, you know, ultimately mom was going to do what she wanted to do. It wouldn't have mattered what anybody had to say, obviously, because many people tried to get her to leave. I can't even tell you how many times, but, um, you know, I just, I don't want him to, Feel like that's his fault. I don't want him to feel like he could have done more or should have done more, because, um, you know, he took me in, and and I wish I could say why mom sent me there. Um, my guess is probably the same as his. You know, I'm sure it was getting to the point to where it was so bad that I just she didn't want me around anymore because the abuse. You know, I do remember it. You know, um, it almost seems like it just got worse and worse and worse as time went. Because when my mom's dad was living. The abuse was not like that. It was more verbal and then like the control. But as far as physical goes, I feel like my grandpa, um, I always call him people. I feel like he probably would have put Michael in the ground over that um, and smiled in his mugshot because that's just the kind of guy he was when it came to his daughter. But, um, yeah, I, I i don't know. I, it's no one's fault, you know, other than Michael's. He's the one who is to blame for my mom's death. And I It really bothers me that my dad holds any kind of um, feelings of guilt over that. Yeah.
6: How is your relationship with your father today? Oh,
3: we've got a good relationship. It's probably, um, I have no complaints about it. It's probably the best we've ever been. You know, I just feel like, um, I felt for a long time that he might not support me in this, just for no specific reason other than, you know, it's his family and I know my dad, you know, lives and dies for his family, um, being myself and, and my sister. But I I don't know, I guess I was just afraid that he might be mad about it or that he might not want to be involved in it. But then to have his support, it has meant the world to me. You know, and every every time a new episode comes out, before I can even get my day started, I've got a text message from my dad, Hey, send me the podcast, hey, send me today's episode. And so I send it and then after he's finished listening, he'll call me and he's like, Well, I listened and I'm like, Okay, and <laughs> you know, and at first I was like, Okay, and kinda of like timidly, but now I'm like, Okay, so what do you think? you know, and he and I have gotten a lot closer even over all of this because we're able to talk about it more and he's hearing it come from other people, you know, and so it's really it's not that our relationship was bad or needed mending, ending, but it's it's just brought us that much closer um having the podcast out there, we're able to talk about so much. And it's, I don't know, it's pretty, it's sad that we have that to talk about, but it's pretty neat, I guess, that he and I are so close that we can just sit and talk about these awful things. And, you know, and sometimes like I'm pissed off and mad and fuming over something and he'll, you know, talk me down. (laughs) He's like, okay, you need to stop and think, you know, there's nothing you can do right now, change it. So kind of cool it. He's talked me off the ledge a couple of times as far as like just exploding. <laughs> and he does.
6: I think throughout this whole process, he's been very open in terms of communicating his love for you and also just being very open about telling his story. And I found that really neat.
3: I did too, because my dad is, Uh, he's not, he's not like that. You know, his private life is his private life and his personal business is his personal business. And I get that from him. You know, it's not something you just want everybody knowing, and I was really, um, I was really shocked when the episode aired of him talking about his childhood. That, that to me was, um, I, I couldn't believe it. Honestly, I was like, oh wow, you know. I was thinking, okay, here we go, you know. And then there was one part, you know, where Stephanie was um, talking about, or she was talking to David Gosa about things, you know, that he had seen growing up around our family. And I was thinking to myself, oh, gosh, you know, my dad's going to be so mad about this. And dad was like, he called and he was like, you know, and so I listened to it. It was a good episode. And I was like, oh, okay, wow. <laughs> so I was I was shocked that I guess because I just expected him to be mad because people were talking about his family. But, you know, here he was right there with him, you know, explaining what happened. And I think it's important that people understand um, where they come from, you know, where, where even I come from. Um, people who meet me, they never know my story. They would never guess it until I've I've told them what happened and, you know, the things I grew up witnessing. And then they were just like, oh, my gosh. You know, that would have – I know so many people that would have just destroyed. But I don't know. I kind of have the mentality of grow through what you go through and um, where some people may take something horrible and, you know, use it as an excuse to become a certain way. I've just used it to, I guess, just – be strong and use it as a platform to hopefully help others.
6: So in episode six, um, and that was Jenna's episode, Jenna mentioned a time when you called Michael. And according to Jenna, Michael was um, in the back room wailing after that phone call and said that um, you had called him a murderer. Can you tell us, uh, from your perspective, what happened during that phone call, and was it the first and only time that you've spoken to Michael about that night?
3: Yeah, um, that's the only time I've ever spoken to him about it. Um, I guess I had just turned 18, and it was to the point of, you know, I was in the mind space of, well, I'm grown, and nobody can tell me what I can and can't do anymore, so... I'm not worried about rocking the boat, so to speak. So I, I I vividly remember this. I was outside with my dad. He had a shop at the house, and so he was out in the shop, and his cell phone was in the truck. And so I went to the truck, got his cell phone, found Michael's phone number, and sat there and repeated that number to myself until I had it memorized. And um, I didn't say anything about what I was doing, told my dad I was going to go inside, and he's like, okay. So I go inside and um, I get on the, on the phone. It's a house phone. So I call him and he answered. I, I, I don't remember if he answered or if Jenna answered. But either way, um, I got on the phone with Michael and I just said, hey, Michael. And he was like, well, hey, honey. And I was like, hey, I've got a question for you. I said, I want to talk to you about something. He was like, okay, what is it? And then he kind of got quiet. And I said, you know, I just want to know, um, I need to hear it from you. I need to hear your side of events that happened the night mom was killed. And let me tell you, it is like a bomb went off on the other end of that phone. He started yelling and screaming at me. His exact words, and I'll carry this to my grave with me, um, his exact words were she shot herself in the fucking head, Ashley. What do you think happened? And I lost it. I lost it. I could not keep my composure. Um, I was already just, like, shaking knowing I was even calling him. And when he said that, I, I lost it. And I called him a murderer. I told him, I was like, you killed her. You, you know, all kinds of expletives there. And he, of course, hung the phone up. And uh, my dad had apparently heard me in the house yelling and screaming and wasn't sure what was going on. So he ran up to the house. And when he walked in, I was just kind of sitting on my knees in the living room floor crying. And he was like, "Ashley, what's wrong? And about that time, the house phone rang. My dad answers it and he's like, Michael, I have to call you back. And then Michael started screaming at him. How dare you put her up to calling me, you know, just cussing him and telling him what a piece of shit he is for doing that. My dad's like, whoa. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Michael told him, you know, you, you had her call me. You had her call me. And then dad's like, I don't know what you're talking about, Michael. He's like, I just walked in the house. And so they got off the phone. And my dad, like, he walks over to me. He's like, what is going on? Like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah but I said I just called him and he's like you called who I said Michael and he's like why did you call Michael and I told him what happened and Michael you know Michael had called back again after dad hung up and you know screaming and cussing at dad and dad just told him like look she's grown you know that's her mom and if she wants to talk about her she has the right to talk about her and you know she wants to call you and talk to you about it I don't have the right to tell her she can't so that was a that was a big day that was a big day
6: Do you think it's likely that um police will contact you in the coming months about your mom's case to at least talk to you about it?
3: You know, that's hard to say. Um, I went to the police a few years ago, and they sat me down, had me do a 10-minute interview with them, I guess. You know, they asked a couple of questions, and it was done, and I've never heard back. But um I guess here's to hoping. You know, fingers crossed maybe that they will. But all I have to say about that is I don't want them to unless they're willing to do something about it. Because too many times I have walked in and gotten my hopes up over talking to a police officer about it. And then for what? You know, for them to say, well, sorry, we lost everything, so we can't help you. And I'm not here for that. How about own up to what you've done Instead of blaming it on past sheriffs or past, you know, whatever, past whoever. And, um, there's a new sheriff, um, elect right now who will take office in January. And I've been told that he's interested in, in looking into this. But I don't want him to contact me unless he's willing to actually try to do something about it. I don't want to be contacted and have another door shut in my face. It's, it's really, it has, it has made me so mad at law enforcement. I just, I I don't understand it. I do not understand why nothing was ever done, Um, why I was never questioned, you know, not even have like a, a, a woman come in and sit with me to ask me something. Nothing. It was just nothing. It was like I wasn't even there. Do
6: you think that some of that or a large part of that had to do with the time period and it being the early nineties and that things have changed today or do you fear that they, they really haven't changed?
3: Um, I, I would like to think that they've changed. I don't really um, have to call the police that often. So I don't know, um, but I, you know, okay. So I'm going to give you an example. I have a friend who is in a very abusive relationship and over the couple of years that she was with her boyfriend, I can't tell you how many nights um, she would have to come to my house and stay. I would bring her, um, tell her, my house is your house. You know, you're welcome here as long as you need to be here. And I would beg her, please just leave. You know, you've got to get away. Um, You're going to end up like my mom. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've told her that. And she's like, I know, I know. And how many nights my phone is ringing and it's woke, you know, my husband or me up. And she's like, Ashley, I need you to come get me. And I'm like, I don't know where you're at. So she'd have to drop me a pen. I'd drive out into the middle of the forest, it seemed like, to pick her up, where he's done put his hands on her or snatched her car keys and threw them out in the woods or, you know, their kid took their their kid and just told her, you know, you're not going to see him again. And, you know, he broke into her apartment and um, destroyed her apartment and then admitted it was him. Um, He was driving by her house all hours of the night, and I'm talking like over and over and over and over again, calling her. He was even having to create new phone numbers on text apps to call her um, because she would block his number. So then he started calling the people she was around or messaging them, including me, Um, and the police were called. They wouldn't wouldn't give her anything, a protective order, no contact order, nothing, so that there just wasn't enough evidence. I I mean, she had a camera in her house that videoed him driving back and forth by, and that wasn't enough evidence. All the text messages of him threatening her weren't enough evidence. That's been this year. You know, 2022, it has been this year. So while I'm hopeful that things will change, while I'm hoping that they have changed, um, you know, I'm I'm shown that they haven't. I've filed harassment charges against them. He's come in my yard at the middle of the night. He has um, messaged me on social media accounts, like, repetitively, and they wouldn't even do anything for me, which, fine, whatever, you know. Um, but I've taken her, and they've just told her, well, you know, we're just going to have to get more proof. You're going to have to get more proof. We had, and this is no exaggeration, hundreds of screenshots of the text messages, of the social media messages, of the no-caller IDs that he's calling from, and then turning around and texting her, telling her, yeah, it was me, but you're going to answer me, you bitch. I mean, it's just over and over and over. I mean, it's just it's just every little thing they can do to control you or to, you know, to torment you, really, because that's their way of control. And the police would tell her, well, you know, I mean, you got to call us the second it happens. Okay, so here we are, and nothing's being done. Now, while there are some, you know, who are genuinely concerned, you know, they're like, look, here's a number you can reach us at. You call us any time. Then you've also got just as many, if not more, who are like, okay, this is another call from some girl who's going to go back tomorrow. So why are we wasting our time today? You know, I feel like that's the mindset that many of them have. And, you know, I definitely think that police need more training when it comes to domestic violence.
6: Yeah, it seems like it's very it seems like those reactions very much have to do with just not understanding what the patterns are there or how to help somebody or help stop it.
3: Yeah. And I also feel like it's um, a lot of it is also kind of um, the boy who cried wolf mentality. So they think, okay, well, you know, this woman, it just goes back to what I said a moment ago, this woman has called us. We're here, we're here to help. And, you know, we're going to get another call in a week because she's back and he's done it again. So I feel like so many of them just get to a point to where they're like, okay, we don't even care. This is a waste of our time to have to keep coming out here because she's going to claim he hit her and she's going to go to court and tell the judge, well, you know, I want to drop charges. So I feel like so many um, officers or just people in general really have that, well, you know, I mean, how many times can you really call before they finally just, Stop responding. You know, they're just going to be like, okay, well, leave. Yeah.
6: Why do you think it's so hard for women to
3: leave? Um, okay, so brainwashing is real. It's a real thing. Um, been there, experienced that. But brainwashing is very real. And I feel like women are probably easier, like more easily manipulated um, into feeling like they need someone than a man is, because a man, you know, they are, they're raised with the mentality of you don't need anybody. You know, you're going to be the protector. You're going to be the man of the house. You know, that people need to depend on you. And so a woman, I feel like a lot of it has to do with um, they probably don't like hearing the words, well, I told you so. <laughs> and they, you know, they want to prove, oh, well, no, it, it's going to work. We're going to make this work. You know, you don't want to leave. But then oftentimes when you bring a child into it, a woman is going to want to make things work because she's got a child. You know, just for instance, you know, my son's dad and I, I wanted to stay and make it work whether we were good for each other or not because we had a child together. And then later, you know, we we came to realize that we were better off as friends and co-parents than we were in a relationship. And, you know, that's where we went with that. So, like, I can understand where that comes into play. You know, you want to stay to make it work for your kids. But then there comes a point where a woman has to ask herself, like, okay, you know, do I want to stay and make this work for my kids or do I potentially not want to even be able to be around to help raise my kids? But honestly, um, really and truly, a woman has to, woman or man, I keep saying woman just because I'm relating to my mom, but a person, an individual has to want to help themselves and they have to want the help before you can help them. Because it doesn't matter how badly I want to help someone get out of a bad you know, about a relationship or, um, you know, because they're they're only going to want to leave when they're ready to leave. You know, they're not going to do it for you. They're not going to do it for their parent. They're not going to do it for their friend. They're only going to do it when they're ready to do it. It's just a way of life for so many people. And you almost, it becomes a norm. So, like, that's that's normal. And gaslighting is a huge thing, um in domestic violence, it's one of the first things I can tell you, even me, like having watched my mom go through that, <laughs> if, um, you know, Jenna talked about it in her episode, talking about there's some things, you know, where, that have carried over into her marriage, where it's something innocent that her husband may say, and she instantly takes offense to it, you know, um, it could be him joking with her about her cooking, but that's a trigger for her, because that's, what michael's problem was you know food it's not done right or it's cold or whatever it may be um you know i can tell you that (laughs) to hear that even me like if my husband says something i almost like i have to talk myself back down i'm like okay you know whoa step back for a second don't immediately get on the attack you know here i'm just like defensive over things that i've never even experienced or been through But it may be a joke to him, but then I'm like, do not tell me what I'm going to do or do not, you know, and he's just joking. So really and truly, it's just um, a lot of people experience gaslighting, you know, they're made to believe that they're the problem when in reality they're not. So it's just, it's a sick cycle. It's such a sick cycle. You know, here Jenna was Mm -hmm. thinking all this time, okay, well, you know, I was wrong because, Maybe it took me too long to get home with his burger, and I had to heat it up in the microwave. Well, maybe I shouldn't microwave it. In reality, she did exactly what she should have done, you know. And she thinks she's the problem there. It just—it all ties in together.
6: So, when you listen to the podcast, do you feel that the story overall was told accurately and fairly?
3: Yes, I do. I do. Um, you know, as much as I. I despise Michael. Um, I feel like he should have his say. You know, people shouldn't just come at him, you know, guns a-blazing, so to speak, Um, you know, or with their swords drawn just ready to chop him up over it. Um, You know, you have to be fair to him, you know, just like with his portrayal or with the portrayal of his um, interview, his police interview. I'm sure that everyone is like, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't that calm. I'm sure he was probably in an uproar. Um and but people you know you don't want to overdo it either because none of us were there to hear that we don't know how that went so I think that was done in all fairness as much as I can't stand the guy like I think it was well done it was um you know it, I, it was tastefully done I guess you could say I don't really know other words for it everyone has had their say um David Wayne you know he spoke out um I've spoken out, my dad, um, David Gosa, you know, his sisters, everyone has spoken. And, um, you know, and I think that it's, it's been good. I'm glad, I'm so glad that so many other people have spoken to you guys about this, because I don't want people to form their opinion based solely on what I say. Because so many people are like, oh, yeah, you know, you're just listening to what was said, or, you know, your dad doesn't like him, so you don't like him. And it's, Got nothing to do with my dad. It's got nothing to do with me. It's about my mom, and I'm glad that people are finally hearing stories from other people. You know, stories that are gut wrenching. Honestly, like Jenna's is the the most powerful to me because she's the most gentle and caring person, and to just know how much of her story um, goes hand in hand with my mom's. I don't know. It's sad, really.
6: So what is next for you in general? What things are you looking forward to in your
3: future? Honestly, I just kind of want to um, I want to take time to um, unwind from all of this. The anxiety has, has been very extreme at times. But in reality, I just, if we're talking about life, I just want to go forward um, like I've been doing. I'm going to continue to let my mom's story be told. Um, I'm going to continue to try to keep her name out there. And I'm going to continue to keep Michael's name out there as well. Because without my mom and without Michael, you know, without one, there's not another. And I I would eventually hope that I'm able to, um, whether it be travel and speak at domestic violence Rallies um, just to keep her name out there and my story told to know you know, there are other people like me who've lost parents. I mean, I know people personally who've lost parents to domestic violence, and you know, they're still not even able to talk about it. But I want to give them hope, I want to continue to go forward and try to get justice for my mom, however it may be, even if it's you know, if I get a phone call in a day a month 10 years from now you know that michael's passed away and nothing's been done in the legal system that's okay because i've i've done what i wanted to do and that is get his name out there let people see who he really is let people form their own opinions about him and hopefully one day the right person will hear it and you know i just want him to never forget never go a day that she's not crossed his mind and to know that because of his actions, she's not here anymore.
2: Thanks for listening to season one of Burden. We plan to release additional episodes if there are updates to this case. Please consider supporting Burden with a donation at burdenpod.com. Look for the donate button at the bottom left hand side of your screen. That's burdenpod.com. Sign up for our email list to get updates on the podcast. You can also support us and the families featured in this and future seasons by passing along the show to everyone you can. The more we grow, the more stories we'll be able to share and hopefully help resolve. If you're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you can find us at Bird and Pod. We wish you all the best. Stay safe.